Osiris stands in solidarity with those who are protesting police violence and racial injustice. Black Lives Matter. We encourage our listeners to donate to organizations working toward change. There are links to a few organizations in the show notes. On to the show. Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. American folk singer Utah Phillips once said, The past didn't go anywhere, did it? It's right here, right now. You can hear the past in any piece of music if you know what to listen for. Welcome to Past, Present, Future Live, a new series from Osiris Media about the musical journey of your favorite artists. I'm your host, RJB. Each episode features an artist taking us through the musical milestones in their life and what's pushing them toward the future. Best of all, the episodes close with an exclusive musical performance from our guest. Videos of all these performances are available on Osiris Media's YouTube page. That's youtube.com slash osirismedia. We've also created a special playlist with all the music discussed in each episode so you can dig deeper into everything you'll be hearing. You'll find a link to the playlist and our YouTube page in the show notes. Our guest this week is Grammy-winning guitarist and producer Eric Krasnow. Many fans know Eric as a founding member of both Soul Live and Lettuce. Over the last decade, Eric has become a sought-after producer. This has led to collaborations with 50 Cent, Electronic Music Sensations' Grammatic and Pretty Lights, and soul legend Aaron Neville, to name a few. We'll learn how his experience as a musician, band member, songwriter, and producer came together in his latest record, Telescope, a musical statement so distinct that he released it under a new name. He also has a new podcast with Osiris Media called Eric Krasno Plus One. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm here with Eric Krasno. Hey, Eric. Hey, man. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. This is going to be fun. Um, I want to start, go way back. What's your earliest musical memory? Wow. I used to um, take Suzuki violin lessons when I was three years old. So my mom always tells me, and I don't remember this, but she used to play music for me all the time. And that before I could talk, there's like a specific story that she tells that we were like in a grocery store and I was sitting in one of those things in the cart. And uh, I think it was, what is it? Dun, 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 dun. That's Beethoven, right? And uh, Fifth Symphony? I, I could be completely wrong. But uh, uh, she said I started singing it. And she was like, oh, that's cute. And I had sang the first few lines. But then supposedly I kept going and was like singing the whole thing before I could talk. And she was always like, oh, my gosh, he's got musical gifts. So much to her dismay, once I actually did start playing violin and doing the Suzuki method, which is where your parent learns with you when we learned uh like some melody when you're supposed to say i can play my violin i can play my violin. i was saying i can break my violin i can break my violin my mom was like no because i just was like not really into the violin but it wasn't until i was 12 or 13 that my brother had a band my brother was a musician he played guitar a little piano and eventually banjo he's a great musician but my my brother had a band and i remember they would rehearse in my basement and like girls would come over and it was like cool you know and he's 6 years older than me so i'm 12 13 and i'm like man that's the coolest thing ever and i would go down there and when they'd be playing and jamming i'd pick up an instrument and they'd like stop and be like no 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 you got to you got to practice man you got to like figure figure your shit out and at the time i was obsessed with led zeppelin and I used to listen to Led Zeppelin records and I had this little record player in my room and, you know, in order to kind of like get my skills together, it had a little input on the front of it and I would like steal his guitar. And then eventually my dad got me a bass cause he figured if my brother plays guitar, my dad plays like piano, mandolin, he's right. like, get him a bass. So I got this really crappy bass and, uh, I used to plug it in the front of this one of those old stereo systems had a record player, a tape player, and a plug-in. So if you played a record, you could play along with the record and record it on the tape. So I would make mixtapes of my dad's records and my records, and then I would play along to them. 
even before that, the what actually got it happening and the reason I ended up getting a bass was a friend of mine in I just remembered this. I think this was eighth grade. Uh, was starting a band and he was like, does anyone play an instrument? And I couldn't play yet. And I said, yes. And he was like, I'm looking for a bass player. I was like, I play bass. So I totally lied. And we ended up going to his house and he had this amazing like rehearsal space in like a barn and he had a drummer and he played guitar. And I remember listening to whole lot of I was no no it's communication breakdown because you could play I was watching him play it and while I was like waiting for them to like show up and set up I learned how to play it in that amount of time I mean I'd mess around like plucking the string but that one is only the open strings it goes na 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 you know and I and I learned how to do that much like literally within whatever that was the time period of them like going down and like their mom made a snack. And I like went upstairs and like learned how to play that uh, enough for us to jam. And then that was it. And then I, my dad got me a bass, um, I think for Christmas and I was pretty much obsessed from there. And then my brother had a guitar that I used to always steal one of, he had this like crappy electric. It was like a Les Paul copy. And then eventually I got an acoustic guitar and then I like saved my money, got an electric guitar and I played bass and I played bass and guitar pretty much together for a long time. And then once I get into high school and, and started forming bands and stuff, I started focusing more on guitar, but I always like played bass too. Like bass was my first instrument so going back to the first story, it's interesting because it sounds like your parents were pretty tapped into the musical, at least the possibility of music. For sure. My dad played music and I, I, he has an incredible ear. He can sit at a piano and he was like a huge Beatles fan and Stones and like rock and roll, but he could sit down and play along to like anything and pick it up. He's got this really natural ability. And then his dad was a professional musician, um, played like gypsy music. And, so it uh, did run in the family a bit. Yeah, it ran in the family. And then my mom's a visual artist and painter and sculptor and stuff. So they were like very into the arts and I'm very like thankful that they were supportive of that, you know. Yeah. That was huge. Definitely. And did you guys play together as a family? Was there family jam sessions or did everyone kind of do their own thing? Mostly our own thing, but we did. I mean, my dad would have friends over and then jam sessions would happen. I wasn't really a part of it so much because I wasn't good at that point, you know, but I do recall like once I could start playing chords, cause my dad's thing was he didn't know a lot of chords, but he could, he could on piano, but when he, he'd play mandolin, he would just find these melodies and he'd really be really great at improvising and soloing. And once he kind of figured out that I could play a few chords, he would make me like sit there and play chords while he'd improvise. For some reason this sticks out to me. Cause like I would start wanting to solo too. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. When you have a kid, he can play the chords and you can solo. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a little, I had to wait. I had to wait. Um, but yeah. that was kind of good for me because it made me like kind of work on my rhythm. So do you remember, you mentioned Zeppelin. Do you remember like the first album that really like grabbed you musically? I think it was like Led Zeppelin one, you know, the first album. But you know which one stuck out, which is kind of interesting because it's not necessarily the one most people would pick out. It's Led Zeppelin three really resonated with me. I loved like the acoustic stuff. And um, so that one lasted with me, but every Led Zeppelin record, I mean, one through four and Houses of the Holy was big. I remember like the crunge was like kind of my gateway into like finding funk music, you know? Cause like, I remember playing that and then somebody was like, oh, you know, that's just James Brown. And I was like, what? And then that, <laughs> and then that just twisted my whole head, you know? So you're playing music in high school and college and Soul Live came together in the late 90s, but you were playing in bands far before that. And I know there's a kind of origin story there. Yeah, well, Lettuce started before that. My parents, you know, let me do this Berkeley College of Music summer program in 92. And that's where I met Adam Deitch and Adam Smirnoff and, and Ryan Zoidis and uh, Eric Coombs, which are Lettuce. And we yeah. started uh, just jamming. I mean, the cool thing about it is like, I was 15. I think most of them were 16. And we had never met 
other musicians our age that were like as serious as we were. You know, we were all like the kid from our school or from our town that was like most into it. So for us to find each other was huge. And at the time I had started seeing Fish play and I'd seen the Grateful Dead play, but I was also Mm -hmm. really into like jazz and funk and um, Herbie Hancock. I was like obsessed with the headhunters and uh those guys were like adam deitch had grown up with earth wind and fire tower of power and we were all really into aquarium rescue unit that was a a big thing they were just coming out anyway so we just we kind of formed a band without playing gigs we just started jamming in the basement and we would like take over the little ensemble room there was a room that was really supposed to be just for drums and we would stack our little crappy amps and we'd all be in there jamming and we'd find a way to like record it on a shitty tape deck and that was like the most epic moments of our lives up to that point it was like we'd listen back to ourselves and be like oh man that's crazy <laughs> So you're 15 or so, and did you know already that you were going to be a musician at that point? I was hoping so. I had no idea how it would actually happen. But um, we all decided that we were going to go to Berkeley at that point for school which would have been two or three years later. We were, it was the summer, I think, was it the summer between sophomore and junior year? And then I think Smirnoff and Zoidis were a year older. So in 1994, we all actually did that. The crazy thing is pre-cell phone and everything. So a lot of us just made that pact. Didn't talk for, I think I talked to Adam Deitch because he was from near me um, and I went and visited him a couple of times. But for the most part, we didn't have much interaction for two years. And then we showed up kind of hoping we'd all be there and we were and uh we all kind of held on to that and that fall uh was when we actually came up with the name lettuce which was based on let us play like we would show up to people's gigs because we know we didn't really have gear or a van or you know we would just show up to like other people's parties essentially and be like hey man like when you guys are done like maybe we could play you know and that was like our thing let us play and uh (laughs) Eventually, we got a couple gigs at a frat, actually, this frat at Tufts University. And those were the very first gigs. Um, And we would only know like two or three songs and we would just jam on them for 45 minutes. And like some people were really into it and some people were like, what the hell's going on? Um, And then I left after a semester. I just, Berkeley didn't really work for me, but I went to school about an hour and a half away at Hampshire College. But there it was cool because they would let me book shows on campus and promote shows. So Lettuce would come up there, I would say like once a month or so. And then the venue in town called the Iron Horse was like where our first gigs were in Northampton, Massachusetts. I ended up meeting the Soul Live guys. They were in a group called Moon Boot Lover way back then. And I was a fan of them and I went to go see them and ended up meeting them. And eventually Lettuce, I think, opened for them. Uh, That's how I met Neil and Alan. Eventually that Moon Boot Lover broke up. And then a few years later, they were forming Soul Live, which uh, I came to their first gig. And they originally had a vibes player. So they played one or two shows without me initially and they had a guy on vibes and the vibes was cool, but it didn't really like bring the energy and they had me sit in on that first gig in Boston and like the crowd all of a sudden was like, I was also just a lot louder (laughs) than the vibes player. (laughs) And within a couple of days they called me like, Hey man, you know, we think you should come jam with us and see about being part of this band. And a lot of the guys in lettuce were doing other things and I was about to graduate school and turns out that my thesis performance was so live. We performed at Hampshire College for my like graduation kind of piece. And, nice. uh, and Alan and Neil, who had been in Moon Boon Boot Lover, they had a lot of um, experience being on the road more than I did. And they had a van and uh, knew what to do. You know, they like had yeah. a mail, they were like, we got to make a ma-. Back then it was mailing lists and we would send mm-hmm. out these cards every month, they had all our gigs on it. And we just like, you know, hit the ground running and started playing to, you know, tons of gigs pretty much nonstop. And we all, we all were like, okay, let's just book as many shows as we can and see what we can make of this. So this is probably 98 ish. 99. It's March of 99. 99. We started our first gig, I think it was like March 2nd, 1999. So I want to jump ahead a little bit because it seems like you're talking about Aquarium Rescue Unit. I know you're a fan of all kinds of music. And by like your second Soul Live album, you guys are having O'Teal 
and yeah. Schofield on the like how does how does that happen? It seems like you went from a college band to collaborating with some of your heroes. <laughs> yeah, it happened pretty fast. You know, Neil and Alan through Moonboot Lover had met O'Teal, but also, and I don't know if this factors in or not, but when we were rehearsing with Lettuce once, they were playing at this club that was right near where we were rehearsing and we knew we couldn't get in because we weren't 21, but we were like, let's just walk by and like see it. Like we walked by and they were loading in. They saw we had okay. instruments and Kofi was like, hey man, you guys want to come in and like check out Soundcheck? I was like, you have no idea. We're like your biggest fans, you know? Wow. And Adam told Kofi and I think O'Teal, you know, Kraz is like a huge fan. He learned Jimmy's solo from this one song. I can't even remember what, what I can't remember what song it was. And they let me play it with them. They like, wow. yeah. So like they, they, I, we got to know them and they loved us. You know, they, they, we were like these kids that were, you know, music school kids that were like, Oh my God, we're not worthy. And, um, so yeah, and then we got to, I think we stayed for the show too. They let us stay and like hang around with them, which is like mind boggling to me now that they would let us do that. Yeah. So that was how I met them. But then Neil and Alan knew, knew O'Teal also from touring with Moonboot because I think they had done shows with, with ARU. And then um, with Schofield, he saw us. I mean, we were doing so many gigs that we were just like running into people and we saw Schofield had seen us at this festival in Boston and, and loved us. And he was literally my hero. Um, yeah. Like a go-go had come out maybe a year before. And we were like obsessed with that record. Um, and then uh, the next time we ran into him was at Berkshire mountain fest and he was playing. We asked him to sit in and he said, yes. And I was like, you know, pinnacle moment for me. And then after that gig, we were like, Hey, we're about to record an album. We'd love to have you. And he was like, cool. I'd love to be on it. And that was that. So I think that a lot of people who've uh, like interviews with you, people are like, yeah, it's hard to keep track of all the stuff you do. And it, it does seem like around this time you started also producing stuff. You worked with Talib Kweli and, and a bunch of others and kind of started going outside of the genres you were playing in. How did that happen? How did that evolve all so quickly? Well, you know, when I was listening to Led Zeppelin, I was also discovering the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and was super into that music. And once I realized that I could have get, I, I got like a DJ sampler and started figuring out to like loop beats. And I was always into that. And then in college and when I was in Boston too, I, I met a few rappers that realized that I could make beats and I would make beats for them, you know? And that was like, my thing was, was making beats and figuring out ways to loop things. And I always had some weird drum machine that I was messing with. And, uh, so I always wanted to do that. I didn't really always have an outlet for it. I mean, I just had like my friends that would come mm -hmm. over and they'd freestyle. When I was going to Berkeley, before I really ran into the Soul Live guys, I wanted to do production and engineering. Like I said, when I was in high school, I found the tape deck. And, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I always... Yeah, that seems pretty industrious for, for a kid to like figure that all out. Well, I was always the kid, too, that would be like, he can hook up your stereo and he can like mm -hmm. try to plug all the cables in. And like I was always like into that, you know? But it was hard for me to always have an outlet for it. Um, so when Soul Live formed, you know, I, I was not really like a jazz player. I'd never had a hollow body guitar. I had never, I mean, I'd listened to some of that music, but I was not like a huge Grant Green or George Benson guy. And back then, like production and making that type of music always meant, okay, we need to sell this to a rapper, sell this to a singer and mm -hmm. find a way to get it out. Whereas now a lot of producers are artists, you know, that was a, just a different thing back then. I think in like the mid 2000s, you had done some work with 50 Cent, you had done some hip hop stuff. You told a story um, several years ago about Interscope approaching you to work on something and you had a soul live gig and they were like, can't you yeah. just move it? And you were like, yeah. And that, and that was after soul live had, had was playing bigger venues and stuff. I think I, we had like a new year's run that was like the nine thirty club and like some sold out shows, Irving Plaza. And uh, you know, that they didn't know about Soul Live or what I was even doing. The the guys at that that were calling me to do these sessions, I was like, nope, I can't change it and I can't cancel it. And they didn't not understand uh, that at all. 
But you were merging these worlds, you were like going between these different worlds in terms of production, performance, recording, but I guess it all kind of, does it all kind of blend together for you or do you well, see them I, as... I believe that it's starting to. For so long, there were like two completely different careers. And now I, I think it took a long time, but I'm starting to be able to merge them together. I think with my last album, Telescope was somewhat of a merger um, where I was like using some of the production ideas that I may use in a hip hop session or a pop session, but in injecting like my songwriting and my playing into it, which it's been kind of interesting over the years. I, I, cause in the beginning I just considered them so different, you know, soul live was over here, lettuce was over here and then producing and writing and doing the things we're over there. But, you know, now I've realized like, you know, just got just having different creative outlets is important. I think in certain cases it's hindered my career because it's not like I just went out there and just like had one band for 20 years. And now that band is like massive selling out stadiums or anything, which would be a nice life. But it's also, um, creatively I've, I've found so many different outlets that I can do different things all the time. I mean, that's why I love yeah. producing because I can make like a folk record one day and I can make a hip hop record the next day. And then I can, you know, play bluegrass one day and then I can play the dead music one day and then I can play jazz. So um, I think I was always so interested in so many different things that it was hard for me to put all my focus in one place, you know? That makes sense. And I want to talk about Telescope more in a, in a minute, but yeah. I do want to go back to the Grammys because every interview introduces you as Grammy award-winning <laughs> producer it, and guitar. Which is kind of weird, yeah. Which is, which, is, which is cool. And you got nominated for several and won yeah. twice, one for the Derek Chuck's band's Already Free, the yeah. contributions on that, and then one for contributions on Tedeschi Chuck's Revelator. Yeah. Um, what's it like having Grammys? Well, it's kind of strange. I mean, I still want one for something with my name on it someday. Mm -hmm. um, that's why it's like a little weird. People say Grammy Award because, yes, I was a part of those records for sure. Um, Revelator even more so because I, I was a little more uh, I mean, with with already free. I just played guitar. Um, but in the other ones, I, I like, contributed songwriting and and playing and stuff. I also have gone, you know, I went with, with Pretty Lights when when we made that record, the color map of the sun record. And mm -hmm. I thought I was really proud of that one. And Lettucey, I produced, um, on Lettucey's album, which I was really, really proud of that album called turn it loose. I mean, it's, it's always great to get that, but there's also been a lot of times where I was working on something where I thought it deserved that and it didn't <laughs> get it. So, but yes, it's yeah. amazing to have that on your resume yeah. and I still want more, <laughs> more of them. Um, especially something on one of my own albums, but, uh, yeah. yeah, like I said, I don't try to think too much about it. What did you learn from just working with Derek and, and Susan? I know you uh, spent I mean, a lot of time with them. I love them. I mean, talk about a focus. I mean, Derek is the most focused artist I've ever known. Um, on so many levels, he knows how to lead a band. He knows what he wants. It's it's a train, man. He's just like, mm -hmm. he knows that if he keeps doing what he's doing with consistency, which he does, that it's going to succeed. And uh, he's, I feel like he just sees the big picture, man. Like he knows what he's doing. He's a very confident dude. Um, and you can tell that from his playing and from um, his artistry. Uh, but yeah, it's great. Hu hugely influential on me. I was in the band for a while playing bass, which was just a great experience, especially getting to play with Kofi every night was just amazing. And they're the greatest people in the world. They are, they've taken care of me on so many levels and I've spent just a lot of great times with them. I feel like Blood from a Stone 2016 was like a pretty big milestone for you career-wise. Yeah. Take us back to like, I don't know, when you were working on that or just before, like what was your mindset at that point? Were you like, I need to make a great solo record? Because you had made yeah. one before that was that was also really good. So yeah. what was different about walking into that? Well, the, the record that I made called Reminisce was very much cobbled together. It was very much like a a lot of the songs could have been soul live songs, could have been lettuce songs, or maybe even wrote written for different groups. But um, with Blood from a Stone, I wanted to make a, 
more of like a rock and roll album. I actually read the Eric Clapton book around that time. And I wanted to... It's a good read. Yeah, it's a great read. And it was really interesting how he started singing and and his evolution as an artist. Um, And you know what's crazy is I wasn't a massive Clapton fan at the time. I I was a big Cream fan, but I always like like Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Those are my guys. But after reading that book, I actually went back and like listened to all his solo records. And at the time, Derek was playing with Clapton. So like I was also just like interested in him. I wanted to know more. So that was weirdly enough, like a huge thing for me reading that book. But even after I read the book, I I wasn't necessarily going to be the singer on the record. Um, I had been writing songs for other people a lot in the years prior. So I'd been writing a lot of lyrics, but I was like, okay, I want to put together a body of work where it's my writing. Well, I ended up writing a lot of it actually with Dave Gutter, who's an amazing lyricist too. But I wanted to create an album but initially I was like thinking about having other singers, Susan and reaching out to all the different singers I know. And as we started making the demos, I actually called Dave Gutter um, because he was the lead singer for a group called the Rustic Overtones. And also really just, I've always loved his lyrics and the album they had created right around that time. This was like 2012, I think had blown my mind lyrically. So I called him up and I was like, Hey man, I'm thinking about coming up to Maine um, they live up in Maine and, and like writing with you. What do you think? He was like, come on up. So I sent him some tracks first and, and he started writing to him, but then we got into a room together and the first night we were together, we wrote that song called Plesia and another one called Jezebel. And then the drummer from the London souls and then our other friends, Stu were in town. It was very much just came together on the spot. And I was like, Hey guys, will you guys come in the studio and cut these songs with me? So Ryan Zoidis, who also is in Lettuce, was also in um, Rustic Overtones. They had this like weird barn kind of garage space that they shared with like a motorcycle like guy. And we set up in there, borrowed a tape machine, borrowed a bunch of microphones with the idea that it was going to be demos. And within four or five days, we cut what became most of that album um, and wrote most of it right on the spot. I mean, it was hilarious because it's this dusty old room and we borrowed a mixing console and borrowed cables and microphones and Zoidis is like holding mics with one hand and holding the cable so it doesn't break and the drums like right in his face. And we had, we had like my amp like in the motorcycle closet um but uh i remember leaving there being like wow man this is not what i expected i expected to have like some demo like voice memos of songs Mm -hmm. and we kind of had an album um it took me a long time to finish it because i didn't have a record label at the time and and also at at first maybe people or other people were going to sing it there was a moment where i was singing the demos i think it was the song called torture and dave gutter like screamed into the vocal room or whatever, into the other room. Like he was like, fuck that man, you're singing this record, you know? And he was, and he kind of inspired me really to sing myself. It's amazing. It's a good album and, and it would be a totally different thing with, with other voices on it. For sure. For sure. And also it, it, the, it turned out great. And also the writing of... was important. I felt like mm. I needed to say those words. And that was, that's another thing that like Dave wrote a lot of it too. And he and I had both gone through a breakup. That's why like the whole thing is like a breakup album essentially. But yeah, I, I realized partway through, yes, this is important for me to like say this, you know, rather than getting other people to like try to try this on for size, you know? Yeah, that's really cool and interesting. And, and I don't want to draw any conclusions that you wouldn't draw, but it seems like that time with Derek Trucks and other people like that sort of inspired you to sure. embrace your own voice and your own leadership. Absolutely. 100%. And so I, I do want to talk about, we're kind of going chronologically here, 2016, your production work continued, of course, and you ended up producing what would be Aaron Neville's last album, yeah, Apache, yeah. which is just incredible. I mean, you and I, I think we've talked about the New Orleans love before, but, um, you know, what was that like? 
It was such a huge honor. I was at Jazz Fest and I don't even know how I came up as a producer. I think he'd heard some other things that I'd been doing. I had done Via Farcatore's album that had a bunch of people on it and had gotten some hype. Anyway, his manager, Mark Allen, a good friend of mine, was like, you know, he wants to see you during Jazz Fest, but no one ever said a time. And uh, I had played a gig till six in the or five in the morning or something, got into my room at six and at seven, my phone starts ringing. And I'm just like such a mess. It's Aaron or Aaron, it's Mark. And he's like, hey, Aaron wants you to come by his hotel and talk with him about the record. He heard your songs and, and he, he loves it. Wow. So I went over there and I'm on like half an hour of sleep and I'm trying to sell myself as his, to be his producer. And he's very soft-spoken, but a massive guy and, and pretty intimidating. And so I'm, I'm really nervous, you know, but he said, he was like, yeah, I love your music, man. And, and, uh, I basically was like, yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan and your song Hercules is like one of my favorites and I'd love to make a record that brought that vibe and da 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 and he didn't really respond to me much at all but it turns out that's his personality and I left there thinking there's no way I got right. the gig and then like later that afternoon Mark's like he wants you to do it and I was like no way how did that happen he didn't even really look at me but um yeah I mean making that album was so cool because he hadn't written a lot of his biggest songs um, and hadn't really been so involved in the production of most of it. A lot of it was come in, sing these lyrics, and that's it. So he had written a bunch of poems, and he sent me a book of 50 poems and said, hey, I want you to help me turn this into songs. So Dave Gutter and I had had like this great report at that time, so I called him. I was like, hey, man, we just got the opportunity of a lifetime. So he and I went to Vermont to my mom's summer house up there, locked ourselves in there for like four or five days, took this book of poetry. Some of the songs are just pieces of things. Some of them are mostly the poem. And we basically wrote 20 songs out of those poems in five or six days without sleeping much. And then I came back and showed it to Aaron and um, we started cutting, you know, demos of it. And this is the funniest thing because I was demoing the songs singing, but my range is here. Okay. And Aaron Neville is here. And he basically was like, Oh, this is cool. Um, you know, once we find the right key, let's mess around and then I'll have you just do the guide vocal. And I'm just sitting there like, like in front of him, you know? So every, every morning we'd go in and he'd be like, okay, now you sing it first and then I'll sing it. And I, was like, me? Are you serious? So I would go in there and sing this high falsetto. And then the funny thing is I had to try not, I had to try to sound like Aaron Neville, but not so much that I'm like imitating him, you know, <laughs> which, so it was kind of funny and it ended up being really fun. And like, he would joke around with me, but the first couple of times were so nerve wracking, but yeah, wow. I mean, get, hearing songs that you've created. And then there was a couple of songs that we'd written that we just pitched to him. That song called Be Your Man was just a song that me and Dave wrote. And just like hearing this idea that he and I had sung by him was just like unbelievable, man. Derek, let's talk about Telescope 2019. There's a pretty big kind of departure, I think. And you started talking about it earlier. I didn't want to oversimplify by saying like, you know, is this like a kind of melding of a lot of stuff that you had worked on over the years? But it does sound like that's at least partially the case. Definitely. I mean, that's part of the reasoning behind changing the name too, because the name was under Kraz. And the idea of the album was that I really wanted to make a concept album that wasn't me, you know, like, like blood from a stone was like songs I've written from, from my perspective. And I'm telling I'm like putting it all out there for you. Telescope tells the story. And the reason it's called telescope is because the idea was that it takes place in this building that is essentially being watched over um, by a voyeur from next door. It basically tells the story of this building in this neighborhood that's gone through this gentrification process over 20 years and follows the characters that live in there. So it's based on three apartments in this building and it kind of like zooms into the world of each one of these characters and then some, in certain cases how those 
how their lives intertwine with one another. I've always loved concept albums. And then when I linked up with Josh from Tea Leaf Green, he ended up doing the videos for it. And that was a huge piece of it for me is I wanted to have like an animation partner, you know, an, an, an animation mm -hmm. piece that could go with it. So yeah, it was a cool process, but I made the whole thing in my apartment. So there was no recording studio. There was no, uh, when we mixed it, I, I went to a studio and had a friend help me mix it, but the actual creation of it. And it, you know, it's all made in my computer essentially besides my guitar, which is plugged into my computer. Um, so it was kind of also like a challenge, like, can I make a record this way? Um, and I'd made hip hop records that way, but could I make a record that was mine like that? Yeah. Um, it's been cool to see how people dig it or, or not. Um, because it's such a departure from my other stuff, you know, it's, it's very much, it's, it's kind of pop, but it's also kind of psychedelic. Um, it's weird. <laughs> the concept is weird. <laughs> You know, well, I think it is like a melding, though, of your previous work. I mean, yeah. but, but holistically, not your not your guitar playing work, right? Your right. production work and the scenes you've been around and the people you've been around, right? Right. And it, I think at this point now, if I made another one in that realm, I wouldn't feel the need to like change the name or kind of like make it a new thing because I feel like even in the last couple of years, people are starting to like know me. Which is kind of interesting. I think that's like the age of social media. Mm -hmm. But I think that it makes sense for me to like be just be me now. Whereas like 10 years ago, it was like hard. Like no one ever knew what the hell I was doing. You know, they'd be like, what the same, this guy, like pretty thrifty scent and he's plays with the dead. And what the hell is this? And then the weird thing is, honestly, I realize there's more and more people like me the more I express myself, you know, it's mm, like, wait, there mm -hmm. are, there are deadheads that like Talib Kweli, you know, that's that, that was like when we would do bowl live, I'd be like scared to have John Schofield and uh Pharaoh Monch on the same gig, but we would do it and people would love it. You know? Yeah. It's like, also I feel like the community that we exist in, is pretty open-minded, you know, like I, in, in certain cases I've turned people on to music, you know, that, that was way out of their realm, but then they've come back and be like, I love that, you know? Yeah. So I would say a lot of people in the like jam scene, which also was something that soul I've never intended to be a part of really. Um, but once we like landed there, I realized like, okay, this is the best audience in the world because they support anything we want to try and they'll, they'll yeah. be honest whether they like it or not, but they're going to support it and they're going to listen to it and give it a chance, you know? Totally. Well, I want to touch on the dead the dead connection real quick because we haven't talked about it much, but you, I think, have mentioned elsewhere you've been a dead fan for a long time. And yep. I just want to know, you know, this dead fandom thing is like experiencing a new revival over the past five or ten years as Big musicians, time. right? Musicians who grew up listening to the dead now can emulate them and there's these tribute albums and all kinds of stuff. But yeah. you've had the chance to play with your heroes. Yeah. What, yeah. Are there any moments that in particular that stick out to you in terms of playing with members of the dead? Actually, there's one that relates to what I just said, which is that when Phil Lesh decided to do uh, the Apollo Theater, he wanted to do something different. And he asked about connecting with some people that would have some impact at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. So we talked about different people and Talib Kweli came up and the Harlem Gospel Choir came mm -hmm. up, which Harlem Gospel Choir actually performed with Soul Live at the Jammy Awards way back in the day. And then Talib okay. Kweli, I've been working with for 20 years. So I called Kweli and I was like, is there any chance that you'd want to do something with Phil from the Grateful Dead? And he was like, hell yeah. And then we got the Gospel Choir as well. And just... The merger of those two worlds together was mind blowing for me. Like having Quali come to soundcheck and like, you know, I like sent him a couple ideas for songs and he ended up rapping on Shakedown Street. And I had Phil and the in the Terrapin band learning uh, Get By and the gospel choir singing the chorus on Get By. And that was huge for me, like watching those worlds to come together because it's just something I never would have seen yeah. coming together. While we're on sort of the broader dead scene, I want to talk just briefly about mental health because I think about this so much. There's this beautiful Saturday afternoon last August. You're you're playing with O'Teal and friends. 
you know, a dozen or so of you guys up there and Neil Casal sings Cats Under the Stars and you guys exchange solos and you guys play throughout the whole set together. And then two days later, he's gone. Yeah. You know? Crazy. And what was your initial reaction when you found out? Uh, disbelief entirely. I'd been talking to him constantly for the that whole summer. You know, we had been friends for years, but that summer we became really close. I had recommended him to play with O'Teal. And when he started playing with us, I was so happy. And we were so happy to finally like have a project together because we'd talked about working together so much. And those few days up before before lock-in, we were talking constantly, sending each other tons of like texts and different music and songs back and forth and voice memos. It's so eerie to look back at it, but of like all the things we were wanting to do in the set. And he was nervous. Um, mm-hmm. with some of the songs because some of the songs were like not in his normal wheelhouse, some of the O'Teal songs. So he was like definitely hitting me up a lot. Like, I don't know about this. What about that? And, you know, after the show, I mean, it was a pretty high point to be up there playing with Bob and O'Teal and there was this huge crowd. And so it was a mind boggling thing. Um, it was weird because I didn't really sleep the night before I hung out with Derek like all night on that Sunday and then ended up like not sleeping and getting on my flight and having this long flight home. And then I got a call when I finally got back to LA and I was supposed to link up with Neil on that Wednesday. That was a Monday night. I was supposed to go up to Ventura to the studio and check out the cats recording Mm -hmm, circles mm -hmm. around the sun and, you know, just kind of hang out with those guys and they were going to finish it that week. They were going to finish it that week. So I was going to come in and just like listen to mixes and stuff. And that Monday night, yeah, I got the call and I was just, I don't think I slept really for a while. You know, that week I was recording in here and I just kind of couldn't, I had known that there had been issues and things going on in his life for the previous year and a half that, were troubling, but you know, and, and the crazy thing was that he had thought about this for a long time. He had written down a lot of things. Yeah. I don't know even what to think about it. You know, I just talked to Chris Robinson last week about it. And it's just one of those things where you kind of think about the things you could have done the first couple of days. All I could think about was I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. And I wish I had been with him that whole night. But really, it seems as if there was nothing anyone could do. So, yeah, it's just I, one of the big mysteries that I'll ever have in my life is like, why? You know, why would he do that? Well, it seems like it was like a big inflection point for the music community in terms of mental health. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel like it's reflective of a broader problem I, I, you in know, the music I world don't, or no? I don't know. That's a good question. I think he had something specific. There was demons in his world. I yeah. do know that like it's great that there's support there. And I know like Backline and some other organizations have, have like sprouted up since. I think that's important. I think the thing about being a musician is like to make music and to write music, you have to put yourself in a really vulnerable place and it makes you... It's it's hard to put your music out there, especially with like he, him as a songwriter. I mean, his his music was so beautiful and so like delicate in a lot of ways. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's hard being a musician, but I feel like it's hard being anything. <laughs> so I, I think if like I think like if there's support in the music industry for mental health, I think that's a beautiful thing. But I don't know if it's because he was a musician that 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 happened. You know. Got it. Yep. One last question. Are there any collaborations or things you want to do in the future that are like on your mind or things that you have wanted to do that you haven't been able to do yet? Well, I have a couple projects in the works. I'm working with Tash Neal from the London Souls, and uh, I'm excited to see that actually come to fruition because he and I have worked together for years, and I just really believe in him as an artist and as a, a singer, and I feel like not enough of the world has heard him yet do what he does or appreciated him enough yet. And I think those are the things that really get me going. Like, sure, it'd be great to like get into the studio with D'Angelo or Mick Jagger or some of my heroes. But to be honest, there's almost more appeal in helping a young artist get to a new place. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you talking to Marcus King about that, about sort of helping him along a few years ago when you guys worked together. Yeah. And watching, watching Marcus blow up has been such a cool thing for me 
you know? And I, I've gotten to see that happen a, a few times over, over the years, but like, there's just, there's just so much talent out there. And I'm like, I get, I get inspired by that. When I see yeah. like young people like overflowing with talent, there's an artist named Victoria Canal that I've been working with. who's just like unbelievably talented. Um, and there's also like some other production things on the horizon that I'm excited about. I'm working with a uh, cat Wright on a record that I really love. Um, she's a really great singer and great artist. Oh, I'm also working on a project with Sun Little, who I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, I'm, I'm always thinking of new ones. I'm always like searching, you know, for new things to inspire me. Actually, now if you want like a big name, I'd love to work with Kevin Parker of Tame Impala. I'm a huge, huge fan, especially of uh, the first couple albums. I think yeah. he, I think his production is so cool. It is cool, yeah. And their new album is really awesome. His new album from this year. Well, this has been amazing, man. You got plenty of projects, so we appreciate you taking the Absolutely. time to help us out with this one. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. And now here's Eric Krasno performing Unconditional Love, Ramble on Rose, and Carry My Name. Maybe I'll start with Unconditional Love. Condition, love. 
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 